Well, welcome to the Firearms Trainers Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. I'm your host, Rob Beckman. Today, we'll be talking about crisis intervention. We bring this podcast to support the industry, the Second Amendment, and most importantly, every firearm instructor in America that dedicates time and energy into making gun owners more knowledgeable. This episode is also brought to you by our friends at the FTA, the Firearms Trainers Association. Head on over to their website at ftaprotect.com to learn more about their instructor coverage they offer and their competitive pricing. Receive a special 10% off on your policy by entering promo code FTP10 at checkout. This episode is also brought to you by the best smelling firearm lubricant on the market, Pig Lube. Pig Lube brings you the best performance by combining high-grade synthetic oil with nanoparticle technology for your firearm. The small applicator allows you to put lube where you want it without making a mess and without using any patches or rags. Easier to apply than traditional oils in your firearm and allowing you to get back to the range and let freedom ring. To learn more about Pig Lube and the technology behind it, go to piglube.net and use coupon code FTP20 for 20% off at checkout. Today, we are joined by James Albertson. Welcome, James. Thanks for coming on the podcast today. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for having me. It's always great to have uh, industry experts come on to talk about different things, and I think our audience will really be um, uh, excited to hear you know, what we're going to talk about with the crisis intervention team. But before we jump into that, can you give our listeners a little bit about who James Albertson is and how you got involved with the crisis intervention team? Sure. Um, you know, I started a career in the military, and uh, I was an enlisted guy. I got tapped on the shoulder one day by my commander asked me if I wanted to go to flight school. So I started flying helicopters in the military, uh, but I always wanted to be a police officer. So I uh, joined the uh, police department here where I live and served uh, on a, a, a fairly large police department. I served there for 22 years. And while I was there, we introduced this new training, uh, crisis intervention team training. Um, and so, I, you know, the one thing they were doing, they were giving the CIT officers the non-lethal stuff, the tasers, the beanbag guns. And I thought that was pretty cool. So I'll go to this training so I can uh, get that good stuff out of it. But I got more than what I bargained for uh, with the training and, and how informative it was. Um, so I retired from that police department, but I continued a career in law enforcement. I became a chief of police and I was so sold on the uh, crisis intervention team training that uh, I wanted to train my whole police department in the crisis intervention team. And we got up to about 90% before I uh, retired from there. And I'm still reserve deputy training SWAT teams and uh, uh, talking to uh, other folks about the crisis intervention team and the benefits of it. Great. You were talking about this was early in career. How, how, what, what year was that when you uh, started getting involved with crisis inter- intervention team? Just from uh, uh, give, give our listeners a perspective. Yeah, I went to the uh, the basic, it's a 40-hour course, and it's taught by healthcare professionals, and they're teamed up with uh, uh, folks from NAMI, the National Alliance for Mental Illness, and that was in 2003, so it's been, what, 17 years? That's a long time. <laughs> <laughs> time flies when you're having fun, so you've, you've definitely been around it and probably seen a, several different iterations of the uh, of the materials and such and uh you know which is which is really good because uh i know our listeners have probably you know 
heard this talked about before, but when it comes to mental illness or mental uh, health crisis, different things like that, none of us are immune from it. It all depends on what's going to trigger us. Is it going to be a financial problem? Is it going to be a, is it going to be a divorce or, you know, is it something that we've got a chemical imbalance, but all those things, you know, all of us are susceptible for and knowing how to identify it and hopefully get out in front of it so that it doesn't become a a life and death situation. Uh, done a few episodes already with uh, walk talk america and this is right on the same lines of making sure that our listeners have the resources to help their students and potentially helping themselves so. yeah absolutely and even the techniques that you use i mean we, we live in a world today where it's almost in crisis you know you can't hardly talk to somebody on a daily basis without seeing an <laughs> argument somewhere but in person, triggering them yes yeah and so these techniques work for that as well and uh, you know, I, I hear the term uh, de-escalation, and I think police officers, we've been practicing it for a long time, and we finally, somebody just put a title to it, but we, you know, I would rather sweet talk somebody to jail than have to fight them all the way down there, so we practice these things, but once we started training them, uh, those things I realized I was doing anyway, but then you throw in... Uh, the knowledge about uh, mental illness and what folks may be dealing with and what kind of, what they're going through, what reality they're living in. Mm-hmm. What, what does the crisis intervention team uh, do? I mean, and what I'm thinking is obviously they're going to try to talk somebody down, but also, you know, they've got to be a certain limit on, on how much they'll put up with before they, you know, maybe try to go hands-on or do different things like that. Could you give our, give everybody a, a kind of an idea of, you know, what, you will allow, you know, sit there and talk, talk it out. And what are th- some of the things that might force you to, you know, uh, up the level of, of interaction with them? Yeah. So, you know, the whole thing is based on what everybody calls the Memphis model. So in Memphis, they had a, a person who was in mental health crisis, charged some officers with a knife, they shot and killed the person. And they said, you know, we have to do something different. Um, I think uh, they were working with a psychologist. I think his name was Randy DuPont. Uh, but they developed a model that that I think everybody uses today called the Memphis model. Um, so as police officers, we're problem solvers. We're running from call to call. I got to get this situation taken care of so I can get on down the road to help. But I think we were given permission to take time. You know, instead of yelling at somebody, put your hands behind your back. We were, we were given the permission to take time and uh, try to handle the situation and get that person who's in mental health crisis to the help they need. You know, the crisis center is what we called it, but it's to the mental health professionals. Uh, and I think some, some places even now bring a mental health professional to the location to try to help along the way. Um, but anyway, when you show up, you want to, you want to do a safety assessment because you never want to jeopardize officer safety or, or your personal safety. And um, it, it involves a lot of active listening. So if I'm waiting to talk, I'm not done. And, and this is goes same along the lines of uh, crisis uh, hostage negotiation, too, because because I've said, listen to the hostage negotiators. And then you talk to them. You're like, oh, no, well, that makes sense. But active listening and then um, a lot of open end questions, because if you ask those closed end questions, uh, those person, you know, if you answer the questions for them, there's no need for them to answer that. And uh, we were talking earlier when, when we had. Uh, some of the consumers we call them, but they were they were actually folks who deal a lot with mental illness, and their only their only goal in life is what they when they want to have a normal life. So 
what makes it not normal sometimes they're off their medication or they've had something set themselves off in a mental health crisis. But one gentleman really stuck out to me when he said his mind is like a uh, VHS tape that's stuck in a loop, a constant loop. And if I was to show up as a police officer and start yelling at him, he said, I understand everything you're saying. I hear everything you're saying, but when you start yelling at me, it creates a more confusion and I still can't get my mind out of the same loop. <clears throat> so time, you know, the timing is everything because it takes a little while to, uh, you, you can show some empathy with body language and your facial expressions and they can start to see that, that you're really there to help and you build that rapport with them and you try to be honest with them. You know, um, you, mental health people, the, the consumer knows that they live in a different reality that's not real to us. So I don't want to buy into the reality. And, um, you know, they may see green men walking all over the place, or they may really think that they're Jesus, or they may think they're the president of the United States. I'm not going to, I'm not going to confirm that. I'm not going to buy into that. I'm going to say, I'm, I'm honest with you. I don't see any green people walking around. Uh, but what I am going to do is I'm going to try to get you to some place where we can get some help for you. And you say those and you be honest with them. You say, you know, on the way, I'm going to have to pat search you for weapons and I'm going to have to place you in the back of my police car. Uh, and that's why I think now some folks are having the, the mental health person come to the location. Uh, but we, we were given the permission to take as long as it takes. And I never wanted to rush the situation. Once I visited with the guy who really hit home with me about his mind is in a constant loop. And, in, and no matter how loud I yell or how rough I get, his mind's still to be in a constant loop. And, you know, if somebody's uh, confronting you, what are you going to do? You're going to get mad. You're going to want to fight back. And that just creates problems between, you know, the consumer and the officer there at the scene. So, and then we're going to look for that voluntary, uh, uh, we're going to voluntarily go with you. So, you know, that's, that's the best outcome. Now, if you show up in somebody's life's in immediate danger, uh, they're either going to harm themselves or others. Then you're immediately going to go to maybe taser or, or beanbag gun first, that non-lethal. Uh, and unfortunately, when a police officer shows up, in mere seconds, it can go wrong in, in such a bad way. Uh, get charged with a knife. Actually, police officers sometimes, I think, uh, in, in today's litigation society, try to wait a little bit longer than necessary and maybe jeopardize their own safety and maybe get stabbed or something. So, but I think mm -hmm. uh, things can go bad in a second or two when you show up. Yeah. What, what is the training that the CIT officers get? Um, you were talking about, you went through a 40 hour course. Is that a, a one-time deal or do they, or, you know, what are, what are some of the topics I guess are done within those 40 hour courses and how often do they have to refresh, get re-updated, um, you know, find what the current trends are in mental health uh, evaluations, those types of, of topics. Yeah. So our basic course was 40 hours and it was taught by mental health professionals, medical professionals, and then they would bring in folks uh, from the NAMI Association, uh, mental health uh, advocates, and then mental health patients who would actually talk to us and tell us what they're going through. Uh, the mental health uh, professionals, the doctors, and the, the medical side of it would explain to us medications that are being used to treat this medication or to treat this mental illness. Uh, we talked about schizophrenia. We talked about depression, uh, different um, mental health um, 
you know, mental health diagnosis and what to look for in those current situations and uh, what medicine treated those people and then what the medicine did to them. And that's what uh, a lot of folks don't want to take their medication because it may cause them to gain weight or it may cause them muscles to seize up and they get painful. <coughs> Excuse me. So that was, that was an eye opener for me. And then um, every year we would go back. Uh, it was, it was, I think, 20 hours at the beginning and then went down to eight hours. <clears throat> Again, it needs to be more, I think, but um, budget drives a lot of things at the police department. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, you can't take that officer off the street a long time. Uh, but it's well worth it to get that extra uh, recurrent training. Yeah, it probably all depends on the size of the department, too. If you've got 10 officers, you know, that's a lot harder than if you have, you know, a 1,000 or uh, what What does New York City have? Close to 40,000 officers, I think, something like that. Yeah. And there's there's something else, too, there. That's a great point. Um, so when if you're in a town that has one police officer on duty and that police officer has to deal with a mental health crisis and they have to take that person to a mental health facility, this is what's hurting us now is they're running out of beds because mental health is such a problem. They don't They don't have room for people. So the closest facility that officer can drive to may be two hours away. Well, you think about it, that takes away that city's or that little town's protection for two hours while that officer is out of town, or they may have to call in somebody and pay them overtime. It really gets into that small town budget. Mm-hmm. Yep. That, those are uh, all things that have to be, you know, really weighed. And then, you know, how do you get the, how do you get the, the person, the help they do need uh, appropriately? And that's where, Hopefully, uh, you know, the legislatures and things like that will look for unique ways to, you know, if we've got an ambulance that'll take somebody to, to a hospital, why not have some kind of transportation service that might take them to a, a mental health uh, facility or something else like that? You know? Yeah, and I think here in the state I'm at, they're trying to do something like that because how much this thing's changed is when I first started, uh, if you become, you come across a person that, who was in a mental crisis, you had to call a county deputy County deputy had to get a judge to sign, you know, a uh, order to take them in custody. And then it, it was almost hands-on and you're wrestling with them and then throw them in the back of a police car and get them somewhere. If we could identify they're in mental health crisis. Um, and the sad part of that is about, you know, in, in the eighties when they closed down a lot of the mental health facilities and those folks were roaming the street, police officers didn't know what to do. They, they didn't know, you know, so we took, a course of, you know, have them arrested for trespassing or something. So they went from needing help to going to jail where that's that's the last place they needed to be. Uh, So education was really key there. Um, And then we, if, you know, if they were in mental health crisis, we had to call a a county deputy, wait that whole time and the county deputy would come, we'd wrestle with the person in custody and get them to the crisis center. So uh, the crisis intervention team or that Memphis model has made a world of difference in, I think, the officer perspective, uh, seeing that there's a real health problem here. It's not criminal, and we need to get that person to the help they need, and that's, you know, the mental health facility. Any idea how many police departments across the United States have the crisis intervention team or the Memphis model um, implemented? I, I do not know. I know that okay. it's it's 
it's nationwide. I've seen, you know, people from all over to, and we talk about the crisis. Intervention yeah. Team. Well, that's good to hear. I'm just wondering, you know, if, uh, you know, the larger cities, I would expect they would have it, but you know, what point does the budget get in the way of doing something like this? You know, just curious on my, on my, uh, side of things. Yeah. And you would hope the budget would never get in the way of helping people, but in reality, you know, you can only do as much as you can. And, you know, and there's this call now to send the mental health professional first. Well, when that call comes in, you don't know that it's a mental health crisis call, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and the people who are typically abused the most is loved ones, immediate family. And for the simple fact, they don't want to call the police because they're afraid for their loved ones going to get hurt if the police get involved. So they sit and they take a lot of abuse uh, but then when it comes down to, you know, either either they'll harm themselves or others or, or the abuse gets really, really bad, they make that 911 call and they may just have a scream, help, I'm getting, I'm getting beat up or help, I'm getting stabbed or help, he's stabbing himself, you know, so you don't know that's a mental health crisis. So mm-hmm. if you delay that, I think to try to get a mental health professional or social worker that information and to give them time to drive to the scene, when you have police officers out there available, it's just a delay of that person getting the help they need to save their life. Definitely. You know, I'm, I'm kind of curious, um, how does a crisis intervention team approach, uh, you know, when they, when they get a call or they arrive on scene and they identify something, you know, somebody's having a mental health crisis, um, what, what's kind of their approach to dealing with that? So, you know, the first thing you want to do, and I, like we talked about a little bit earlier was assess the situation for safety. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've showed up where people have had uh, knives to their throats or, you know, guns to their head or something. That's a big clue. <clears throat> but if they're just standing out in the front yard and they're yelling and you don't know who they're yelling at, uh, you know, are they mad? They'd upset. So you you have to get into that active listening role and ask, you know, kind of see what's going on and picking up those clues. Uh, it's just you know, all about being patient and then asking those open-ended questions. Um, the who, what, you know, who, who's bothering you? You know, this, it's this old man sitting on my porch. She won't quit yelling at me. Um, you know, um, and then you reflect back. Okay. You say there's an old man sitting on your porch yelling at you. Um, I don't see that person, but I, I believe you do. And I believe it's upsetting you. Uh, how can we get you some help today? And, and you, you slowly build that rapport. Now that's the key thing. It's just the timing. You just, and you got to be honest with them and, and build that rapport. And that really helps. And again, you're looking for uh, you offer an acceptable solution. And, and, and the, the best outcome is they buy off and agree to your, your offer, your solution. Um, and I've had them tell me, no, that's not going to work. I'll tell you what, it's just a small thing as will you let me smoke a cigarette on the way. I don't smoke but I carry a pack of cigarettes and a lighter because I have, if you just let me smoke a cigarette, I'll go with you. Okay. I'll let you smoke a cigarette. If that's all it takes. We'll get you down. We go down to the mental health facility, the, the crisis center, let them smoke a cigarette and they can go in and talk to a mental health professional. Something as simple as that, that you pick up and you learn along the way. So it's just looking for that voluntary. I'll go with you instead of the physical confrontation that mm-hmm. you'll throw in a police car and you will go. 
Yeah. What suggestion do you have for our instructors out there when they might be talking to their students um, on how to take some of what we've talked about and uh, apply for, to, in a civilian standpoint? You have any suggestions for them? Yeah, you know, so the one thing as a firearms instructor myself, um, and, and, and people buy firearms to protect themselves, is to if you have a person who you know is dealing with a mental illness and may go into crisis at any time, is put those things up, lock them up, you know, give them someplace where you have quick access to them, but only you have access to them because we never know what's going to trigger a person to go in mental health crisis. So um, I, in my classes, my concealed carry classes, I stress the, the mental health side. If you're in a home with somebody who's going to have a mental health crisis, lock those firearms up. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as when, you know, um, when I'm teaching a concealed carry, you know, I want to teach see and avoid, escape, and defend. So um, if I can see a person down there and they're talking to somebody, they're talking loud, and I don't see anybody around, maybe that's an area I'm going to avoid. So we mm-hmm. want to stress that with our with our folks that we're teaching. Uh, if I walk around the corner and all of a sudden I'm confronted by uh, somebody who's having a mental health crisis, is uh, I, I see a lot of people, and, and it's it's just nature that we want to help, and um, then we introduce a firearm in the situation because we want to help, and we're armed with a firearm, and it may come down to how often do you train weapon retention. Because mm-hmm. while you're trying to help, the person in mental health crisis may see you as part of their problem, and then the wrestling matches on. So, do you train weapon retention? So, uh, but as far as sitting there and, and and negotiating with a mental health or a person that's in crisis, you know, the best problem is just to probably call nine one one and get some help there for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely uh, difficult for the untrained. Um, to really do a whole whole heck of a lot because you know you touched on it you know the the families and loved ones you know they are around it every day and they still are abused because they're trying to deal with it and uh, it can be very tough especially if they're off their medications or you know they're you know they're you know they're schizophrenic i mean things you know like you were saying they're seeing and hearing uh things that you can't relate to and it's really challenging trying and uh mm-hmm. really really hard to uh figure out and that's where you know calling you know calling calvary you know get some help for them for you there before things uh turn turn really really bad yeah and you know the sad thing over and over and over and over i hear a person with a mental health uh illness say they just want to live a normal life you know what's what's normal mm-hmm. but for them they see our life maybe as normal I don't think I'm a very normal guy, <laughs> but, but you know, that's the sad deal. They just want a normal life. So what's normal. Right. They want to be able to go to work and function at work. They want to be able to have relationships and function in their relationship, but then they have to take medication that may cause them to seize up where they can't drive or, or, you know, a female may gain weight and, and not feel that they're attractive. So they stop taking their medication so they can lose the weight, but then they, they go into a mental health crisis. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And those are the ones that are diagnosed with it. You know, there's right. plenty of people that are, um, you know, functioning in life every day that are having their own depression, anxiety, doing those types of things. And that's where, um, uh, 
well, the walk talk America, when I've talked to Dave uh, Sedoni uh, about it, uh, you know, you, you realize when somebody's having a financial pr- uh, problem, uh, you know, a big bill or, you know, they've lost a large investment or somebody who's going through a divorce, you know, relationship, um, you know, has gone south. Uh, those mm-hmm. things can even take the most uh, stable person and really kind of push them over the edge. And that's where as uh, fire instructors, probably not exactly a firearm topic talking about mental health, but I think it's definitely one that is uh, good for us to keep in mind because we want to, we want to arm our students um, with the best knowledge, skills, Mm -hmm. and attitudes so they can go along and survive, but also making sure that, you know, after the event that they're not sitting there regretting whatever action they took, you know, they, they can effectively persevere from the, from the event. I've seen, um, I was in a Facebook group the other day. Um, someone said, I need help in this state. I've got a lady who's being threatened by her ex, whatever. And so is that person in mental health crisis? Now we're fixing a trainer to use a gun to kill that person who's in mental health, you know. So we got to weigh those options, really. If, if you see something like that, what, what am I setting myself up for? What, what situation am I getting into? Even if it's a domestic violence situation, and I'm going to teach this person how to use a gun, and, and I know that this situation is really tense, you know, maybe we, we get some authorities involved and get you a victim's protection order or get some authorities involved and see if there's a mental health crisis going on. So. Yeah, it's, it's definitely, um, you know, we have not covered, uh, you know, protection orders, but it's one of those things whenever you get into those domestic ones, the more layers you have of, you know, that you've done this, done this, done this, done this, um, it proves that you've at least have not gone directly to the gun to defend yourself with um, right. and may not change things. But at least you can go along and demonstrate that you've tried many other uh, other ways of uh, preventing this to get to that life threatening situation. Mm-hmm. So, really good good uh, conversation, uh, James. Uh, glad glad we were able to connect, and really glad uh, having you on the show. But we got the special question for you to, right now. What kind of books are you reading these days for personal enrichment? So I am reading uh, Left of Bang, and I'm learning a lot about. Uh, uh, you know, the old Marines, everybody talks about them eating crayons, but they have a lot of knowledge to, to pass on. Being an old Army guy, I give them, I give them fits all the time. But, but that's a good book, that Combat Hunter uh, method. And I wish I would have gone to that school when I was in the military because it sounds like a great school. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then also I'm rereading Extreme Ownership. And uh, I'm, I'm big on leadership, so I'm reading uh, – uh, a book about the secret of teams and the, the extreme like, ownership. That's by Jocko uh, Will, Will, Willick, right? Right. Yeah, uh, okay. Yeah. 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 And I wish I could tell you, uh, I can't, uh, Ken, he wrote the, he, so um, Chick-fil-A trains everybody, right? I always said, if I can get my police officer officers, that act like the kid at Chick-fil-A, I'd have a lot of problems solved because the customer service would be awesome. Uh, but uh, Ken something, Mil- I can't remember his name that wrote that book, but they, they take those training methods Chick-fil-A does and puts them in books and they're awesome books. Yeah, I had a, uh, I had the privilege to meet Dan Cathy, the owner founder of Chick-fil-A and mm-hmm. a very engaging person and also a very humble person too. It's um, de- definitely um, worth, uh, if you got a chance to hear him speak or get a chance to uh, talk to him, he's a very interesting guy, very humble guy too. So he'll, I'm sure he probably will. If he'll talk to me, I'm sure he'll talk to uh, just about anybody else like that. Uh, appreciate that, James. Uh, where can 
people find out more information about you and uh, what you're doing these days, different things like that, James? Yeah, so I got a podcast, Old SWAT Guy Podcast. Uh, I'm just trying to get it up and running, so if you'd like to just listen to that. Uh, I've got a uh, Facebook page, Crimson Tactical, uh, to, to help get my uh, firearms uh, firearms instruction up. Um, it's a big transition for a law enforcement guy to come to a civilian guy where we're talking about uh, avoid, escape, defend when police officers are taught to run in and and uh, engage. So it's a big transition for me. Mm-hmm. Yep. I definitely would agree. Uh, when I've taken some, uh, law enforcement courses, it's uh, very enlightening to kind of see what they've got to go through. And then also the, uh, preparation uh, that they do, they just don't go in blindly. They go in and try to try to go in there with the highest chance of success possible. And we know from the news sometimes that they're not always successful in uh, everybody getting out, but it's one of those that there is a, a big focus on. Uh, let's, let's, do what's, let's do what we need to do, but also make sure we do it the best way possible. Right. right. So, well, we appreciate you being on, James. And uh, maybe in the future, um, we'll have you on again, uh, talk about a different topic, because as an old SWAT guy, it sounds like uh, there could be some pretty good stories and pretty good uh, methods and everything that maybe we can uh, you know, pick your brain about and figuring out how we can train uh, civilians and even some of the law enforcement instructors that, that listen to our podcast um, about in the future. Uh, it's great. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate you having me on, Rob. Okay. Well, that's a wrap for this episode, everyone. We have a few requests. If you have any ideas, questions, or feedback, please email us at ftp at concealedcarry.com. Visit our sponsors, especially the Firearm Trainers Association at ftaprotect.com, and use promo code FTP10 at checkout for 10% off your policy. Go out, rate our podcast, and leave us a review on iTunes or Google Play. Um, we appreciate that. Helps other people know the quality content that we have out there. And talking about quality content, if you like this, share it with your friends. Tell other instructors you know. Tell other people that you know that it's worthwhile to listen to us and subscribe and get the great information. If they don't know about us, then they can't be using the great information that we talk about every week to help enlighten their students on it. Remember, we bring you this podcast to support the industry, the Second Amendment, and most importantly, every firearm instructor in America that dedicates time and energy to making gun owners more knowledgeable. Take care and stay safe, everyone. Concealed Carry Inc. and ConcealedCarry.com strives to share helpful information and education about gun-related topics, training tips, and other things that may potentially have legal implications for its listeners. The information contained in this podcast is intended in good faith, but it is important to understand that laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand laws that apply to them. Nothing in this podcast should be misconstrued as legal advice or counsel.